Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to Pod Sequentialism. I'm your host, Matt Kennedy. And um, just want to sh- give a shout out to uh, a couple of things that I'm involved with at the head of the program here. Um, many of you already know that I'm the gallery director at La Luz de Jesus Gallery, and uh, you can find La Luz de Jesus online at L-A-L-U-Z-D-E-J-E-S-U-S.com. Also have opened up a space with my wife in Pasadena called Gallery 30 South, and that is Gallery30South.com. Both of those can also be found on various Social sites like Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, and generally it's at and their names, so at La Luz de Jesus or at Gallery 30 South. And uh, some of you may also know that I uh, participate with um, exhibitions for the Panic Collective, and that's Panic with a K. And again, Panic Collective, and it's at or dot com and the various uh, places you may want to go to look for it. But I also want to say that uh, we've recently sort of relaunched the website of Pop Sequentialism, which is the traveling exhibition of comic book art of the past, well, most most recent era, I guess you would say. So the era that follows the Bronze Age, which some people call the Dark Age and some people call the, the um, Modern Age, into the now. And that exhibition is what sort of led to this podcast and... I had been in a battle with our uh, web host about getting control and access to the site that we created, and it was a long, ongoing thing. And now we do have the site back, and we are updating it, and starting to give it a bit of a facelift is going to be happening. But I also want to push people towards the um, the pop sequentialism page on comic art fans. Since this podcast started as an outgrowth of my fascination with comic book art and seeing it as a fine art medium, it's important to me that the next generation of collectors start actually getting their hands on original comic book art. And I've written numerous articles on the investment potential for illustration art, specifically published in uh, illustration art. And comic art comes out on top when you look at what it costs to get in and the uh, amount of times that your investment actually increases. Generally, if you look at stock portfolios, a stock will go up 10%, and that's considered tremendous, huge. And in the last few years, we've seen really large leaps and and jumps by various high-tech stocks like Apple and uh, and others. Um, And now we're looking at a return on investment sometimes 100 times what the initial investment was. And while that's not going to be consistent across the board necessarily, it has proved out in a case study that I conducted going back the past 40 years. So 20 years later, uh, things generally go from double to 10 times what um, their initial investment price was, which is pretty big. So um, again, comicartfans.com, look for pod sequentialism, type in my name, Matt Kennedy, in the um, in the premium gallery owners, and you can see the stuff that I've been putting up. And recently I was able to get a hold of some very interesting pieces, including 
some uh, full classroom uh, jam posters done in 1978-1979 by everybody that attended the Joe Kubert School and their instructors. So you're looking at people like Steve Bissett and John Tottleman and Tom Mandrake and John Drasama with instructors like Dick Ayers and um, Holy Mackerel, you know, uh, pretty much everybody that was important at DC at the time. And a lot of people that were working for comic, um, like humor publications as well. So go ahead and go to Comic Art Fans and take a look at that. I've also been posting these types of things on the Pod Sequentialism Facebook that's probably going to get a bit of a face change and maybe a name change in the um, in the next couple of weeks, and I'll be sure to keep you all abreast of that. But what I want to talk about in this week's show is something that just happened, and as we record here, we're, um, we're speaking to you from Meltdown Comics and Collectibles the weekend that WonderCon is going on in Anaheim, and I went and visited and, and on the first day and Stop by a couple of tables very quickly um, while uh, dropping off some more original artwork for um, Scott Eater, who is repping some of the pieces that I've recently acquired, especially underground and um, not necessarily commercial comic book um, superhero work, but humor and, and that type of thing. And while there, I got a chance to walk around the artist alley and talk to people who are putting out some really exciting things and didn't get a chance to necessarily to go into the product and resale uh, aspect of the show. I missed every single panel because I, I had a very limited amount of time. But while there, uh, one thing that had been hitting the, the news cycle was an interview that was given by one of Marvel Comics, the publishing end of, of Marvel Comics, um, reps to a consortium of comic book store retailers. Uh, that person's name is David Gabriel. He has been the mouthpiece for uh, Marvel for quite some time. Uh, a lot of the reporting on this has been going out via two sites. Bleeding Cool has been running a lot on this. And uh, also where the original, I think, interview developed from was a site called ICV2. And what the gist of it is, is that he made a statement that said that um, Marvel's embrace of diversity has not been a moneymaker, and so they're walking away from it. And um, that is a paraphrase, but it's very close to what he said. And um, I'm going to go ahead and read you a portion of, of that interview because I think it bears, um, it bears speaking in the man's own words so that should he decide to defend the position that was given in this, um, in this forum, that he can do so and that we're not mischaracterizing anything that he said. So part of what has been the shockwave here, and a lot of comic creators have been responding to it, is not just the idea that Marvel views this turn towards diversity as bad marketing and therefore something they're not going to stick to, which shows a little bit of a weak backbone when it comes to taking a, an actual ethical uh, or moral stand behind something, but also that the same day that this news hits... Fortune magazine ran an article congratulating Marvel editor-in-chief Alex Alonzo for championing uh, diversity. So it's it's kind of a, a very interesting situation where, and I'm sure you know that at Fortune, these articles get put together months before they actually see publication. So the timing is just unfortunate for, for Fortune, perhaps, but uh, maybe more unfortunate for Alex Alonzo. And when we dig a little bit deeper into the story, we also see that 
certainly while there have been strides in the last couple of years in Marvel books with, um, you know, um, African-American and Hispanic teenagers as Spider-Man, a uh, 16-year-old Muslim girl from uh, New Jersey becoming Miss Marvel, a female Thor, a Korean-American Hulk, and um, African-American girl in an Iron Man suit, that there, there's definitely been a bit of a change-up in what is considered the classic Marvel lineup. But the argument is that these, a lot of these, and some of them have definitely caught caught on and have been very popular but a lot of them have they feel have been getting backlash because they're only looking at this from a purely numbers point of view from a circulation point of view and i think if you don't take into consideration the fact that numbers across uh print media and other media are down across the board since about october of last year so you're talking about just before the election through now that you can't look at a piece of data like that and not consider it when when making decisions about business so for a company with as many executives and statisticians as marvel must have for them to say that this step towards diversity has not been working since October of last year and say that that must be why the numbers are down is kind of a Pollyanna-esque attitude to take. It's uh, it's a very, what's the word I'm looking for here? I mean, it's just not an intelligent um, look at data. You have to consider all things. But one of the other big things that has come out of this is the fact that Marvel made a decision very shortly after the big image exodus in the early 1990s to not allow artists to gain power the way that they had had it before so that they didn't risk another max a mass exodus of talent and you know feeling like that they had built up the careers of these people and then see them walk away in 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 squabbles and disagreements over payment and we're seeing a lot of that in entertainment at large lately. There's going to be probably a Writers Guild strike coming at us very soon because of the nature of streaming and television series being fewer episodes than they used to be. You know, it used to be 12 to 24 episodes. Now it's about 8 to 10 or 8 to 12 episodes form a cycle that the turnaround time in shooting means that these extended budgets give three-week um, filming schedules rather than a week and a half of shooting for each episode, which means that the writers are getting less work. And since streaming numbers aren't being made available, it's becoming difficult for them to come up with a metric on how to calculate residuals, which is the money that someone makes after a product airs based on how much money that product is making. And since many of these programs have, or many stations, channels, outlets, production companies have a direct line and direct market to their consumer, there's a more difficult way of how you stress that metric. And a few years prior, we're going talking about maybe 20 years now, when the X-Files went into syndication at Fox, Fox gave a sweetheart deal to a subsidiary called FX and charged themselves less than would have been a fair market value for the series. And the series leads sued and won. And they won a lot of money. We're talking like, you know, $40, $50 million each. And there's been accusations of this in streaming where you have a company that has its, its, its interests spread across a number of different platforms and they give themselves a sweetheart deal. And that can often fly in the face of specific agreements in place with particular productions, um, individual unions, and um, investment um, 
you know, stock traders, people who are buying the stocks. And when this happens, you see a lot of backlash and sometimes lawsuits and sometimes the dissolution of organizations. And so I'm going to pay special attention to how this shakes out in the Writers Guild strike uh, in streaming because that can be applicable across any platform. You know, so um, that's one aspect of something that I think feeds into this idea that the industry is making less money. But if you look at how the numbers started to fall off the map, you also have to look at two things that coincided. One, of course, is that the direct market that built up around the same time that the image exodus happened saw companies like DC striking uh, deals with companies like Diamond to sell their comics directly to um, to comic book stores. And since they saw that as the biggest part of their market, they weren't as attuned to marketing their goods to people that weren't already reading comic books. And so that new comic buyer started to actually drift away. If you didn't know somebody that was already collecting comics, they were not being marketed to you. They weren't being um, sold to the newsstands because the newsstands didn't have diamond accounts. Um, and Marvel then followed suit. And Marvel had started, has in, in retrospect, in hindsight, started shaking their finger at DC Comics about that initial decision to go direct market. And then Marvel followed suit and went direct market. And, you know, that sort of caused a dissolution of the small press. And that caused a large number of people to leave the hobby. And so whether or not somebody is only reading, say, a Fantagraphics book, or they're only reading a DC book or only reading a Marvel book, when they go into a comic book shop and they pick up... um, you know, the books that they read, there's going to be other people talking about other books, and they're going to occasionally drift outside of that series that they collect and pick up additional titles. And when there were more outlets catering to this, before that huge collapse in the 90s, there was at least this idea that the fan base already collecting would occasionally stretch out so that that money would would occasionally increase, that people had their minimums, but they would occasionally go above their minimums and buy more. Now, certainly there have been economic um, downturns in the last, specifically probably the last um, 10 years, but that these, there are spikes, you know, there were, there were, there was a downturn economy in the Bush into Clinton years, and then the the economy got strong, and then there was another collapse uh, in the Bush years, and um, a very, very slow recovery that we're still not completely out of yet. But that does affect the amount of money that people have for monthly comics, but by making a decision at Marvel to not produce the next generation of superstars the way they had done with uh, Rob Liefeld and Jim Lee and Todd McFarland and Wills Portacio and Mark Silvestri and, you know, several other names beyond that, by making a conscious decision not to leave um, Pencilers on a title for long periods of time, um, with the exception, actually, of uh, Ultimate Spider-Man, which would come along quite a few years later, um, that you have the same writer and the same artist on the title, that that actually transitioned the power from the artist to the writer. And so when you ask almost any person or any shop owner um, in the comic business what the number one thing is that keeps them glued to a title, it's consistency in the writing. And when you have titles that that switch writers often, that you see a lot of drop-off, and it's hard to get people back once they leave. So this idea that the talent isn't an important part of the equation and by taking and shifting the attention away from the visual aspect of the talent, the artists, 
um, and by proxy giving that power to the writers, they ensured that fewer people were getting higher salaries because a single writer can work fast. They can produce multiple stories, uh, can work on large formats, universes simultaneously, and not stricken with the the necessity, the slow work, the slow slough that an illustrator has to do. They can cover a lot more ground. And generally speaking, writers are paid a lot less than artists are anyways, because they're not getting paid by the page the way an artist is. They're getting paid for a story. So by making a kind of straw man of the writer and putting the power into that, they guaranteed that um, in a certain aspect that they have increased the bargaining power that certain writers have. And knowing that, they sort of doubled down and made across the industry, both at Marvel and DC, just a handful of writers, the very important people. And when you go to a a superhero movie, you see those people's names as producers and co-producers and associate producers in the credits, even though they're not contributing directly to writing the scripts or to, um, you know, making the movie per se, but they are appreciated at those companies and they're given this, this credit so that there is at least a sign of respect, if not necessarily a lot of money coming their way. And some people will take tribute instead of payment. Mm -hmm. But to step back and, and kind of look at how the numbers floated off the map, that's the one thing that we have to pinpoint because in 1993, 94, 95, when, when the numbers in comics started, they got built up very highly and then they exploded. There were certainly the gimmicks. There was the, you know, gold foil covers or whatever that were starting to happen and the multiple covers. And this is before the kind of premium cover thing took over, but there had been a few. There was the platinum edition of a couple of titles at Vertigo and there were the, the gold variants at, um, at Valiant, and Valiant was a very big part of destroying the the business at that time, and it was in the very capable and destructive hands of Jim Shooter, who had already alienated himself from most Marvel fans after a very long tenure at Marvel, and whose memos became public through a series of leaks from the Marvel bullpen and the Marvel office to the editors at the Comics Journal, which gave a very ugly picture of what executives thought of the people reading their product. And that was an eye-opener, as has been this very latest wave of public opinion and maybe justification of a change in direction that we're getting from Marvel in this just past couple of days. So before we dive headlong into that, we're going to take a quick break, hear from one of our sponsors, and we'll be back with Pod Sequentialism with I, your host, Matt Kennedy, talking about uh, the new war on diversity at Marvel Comics. Now, next, the next 20. Gotcha. Hello, and welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I'm your host, Matt Kennedy. And as we were talking about a little bit before the break, we were going to get into the nuts and bolts of the point of view uh, put forth by Marvel Comics via their mouthpiece, David Gabriel. And I promised that we would actually read what he had said and the questions that were asked of him. And I want to give full credit here to ICV2.com and also to Bleeding Cool, who have been publicizing this issue very widely and getting a lot of creator and fan reaction to this up and posted. And while it may have a bit of a quagmire effect in that there's going to be a lot of load on and there's going to be a lot of people with, um, with a, especially a vocal point of view online, 
I want to say that having read through a lot of those comments, there are people that agree with the position that was put forward by Marvel as well. And um, I think that that feeds into the current political climate and speaks specifically to the amount of time they're talking about in cost associated with the industry and the numbers going down. So when asked the question that um, a statement had been made that in October everything had changed, yeah, and being asked to clarify that, David Gabriel responded with the following. There was just a big shift in the entire industry, and there were a lot of factors behind that. I think everybody had a modicum of blame publisher-wise. I think the economy had a little bit to blame. By economy, I'm talking about what was going on in the outside world, which led people not necessarily wanting to spend money in that October-November time frame. I don't know that with all the returns that were coming to Diamond, there was a lot of, of unease in the market. There was money that was missing from the market because of those returns. There was a lot of work that retailers were doing to get all those returns back. Because of that, there was anger. There was anger because of economic reasons. There was anger because of story reasons for all of us. There was probably a little too much product going out at that time. We all got a good kick in the ass over that. What I had said was, after looking at everything that was going on, we knew that we had to make some changes and we couldn't do anything the next month. We had to wait six months before things could start taking place. That's sort of what we're getting to now. I hope that clears it up. So that's the end of his quote. And I want to um, speak to something that he addressed, and he's talking about returns. So DC Comics, coming from a very long publishing history through Time Warner, has experience with the standard shipping and return policy, pol- shipping and returns policy that bookstores have. Now, Bookstores were a huge part of the push towards the graphic novel, not the album-sized, specifically produced for that format books that Marvel had brought out in the early 80s and called graphic novels, but the bound editions of collected stories that we see with things like Mao's, things like Absolute Watchmen, things like you know, Ultimate Spider-Man Omnibus, that the bound editions of these comic books have become a huge part of the market because DC started producing and doing such great business with their properties, The Dark Knight, Arkham Asylum, and then collected editions of the Vertigo titles such as Sandman. And they were such big generators of income because they went out and they grabbed buyers that did not buy comics. These are people that have no interest in buying monthly comics and paying whatever that costs each month, putting them in a a box after bagging and boarding them and sticking them in a long white box, cardboard box, covering it up and sticking it in the corner. These are people that have bookshelves and want to be able to easily access and pull off a bookshelf, something they can just open up, read, and put back on the shelf when they're done. And that is the majority of people who read. So as comic fans, we've always taken a little bit of flack about the fact that we read comics. And part of that is because comics are, relatively speaking, or were at least, inexpensive in comparison to the cost of books. And so because they cost less they and because they were thinner and had much less words in them than, say, a, a novel would, that they were seen as having little more value than magazines. And while most people didn't save magazines except for perhaps people with massive collections of National Geographic, um, it was considered bizarre to people who didn't understand the hobby that people would save back issues. It seemed inconsequential that it was a fast single serving form of entertainment and they couldn't understand why people would save them 
as reports of older comic books becoming very valuable and selling for a lot of money, then as a speculation and an investment, it sort of made sense. But those same people would be the first people to say that, hey, if you're gonna if you're gonna collect them for the money, you might as well save stamps because you can always mail a letter. So while this new market opened up by DC embraces the casual reader of comics who generally wants to buy a book to put on their shelf and it has a bit more respect to it and has more heft and it's nicer and it's easier to store and you can read the spine and it's not something that's gonna you have 20 of them in a row and they 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 fall down because they're so thin or they slide all over the place they don't require bagging and boarding and all that type of thing that it took a long time for marvel to kind of wise up and see that there was money to be had there and because not a lot of Marvel Comics were garnering the type of acclaim that books published by DC were garnering, it was a harder bid when they decided to select certain things for repackaging and for graphic novels and, and for binding. And the first stuff that I remember seeing along those lines were the Claremont and Burn X-Men and the Phoenix Saga, and I remember that getting bound as a trade paperback early on in the process. And they were also at Marvel starting to produce the classic X-Men line, which was reprinting from Giant Size Number 1 and X-Men 94 upward because there had been such fascination in re-kickstarting starting X-Factor series, which was the classic X-Men from X-Men Number 1. And they had you know, a lot of money on the table with mutant titles. And this is in the late 80s. Now, New Mutants were doing quite well uh, under, you know, Bill Sankiewicz and Chris Claremont and a few other people. And they had this kind of really large market share, but that was before the explosion of independence that happened uh, after the, you know, 1985, 1986, uh, when titles at companies like, you know, Miracle Man comes to Eclipse, uh, the, the titles that were at first and at Capital were, were starting to be consolidated under Eclipse as well. Dark Horse was starting to enter the market. So there was, you know, image hadn't, the image exodus hadn't happened yet. So all the talent in the business, at least in superhero comics, was definitely at Marvel and DC. And the popularity of certain artists would lead to try to push them towards series, but not all artists were fast enough to work on monthly titles. So while Art Adams was a very popular artist in, in the late 80s in comics, he wasn't a fast enough penciler to produce a monthly book. He would do occasional fill-in issues, he would do covers, and he would do annuals. And people who remember the, the crossover annuals of New Mutants and X-Men that he did, are, it's just a classic. It's, it's a masterpiece of, of the era, some of the best illustrated stuff. And definitely the look of Art Adams' comics was a big imprint on the minds of that generation that was just to follow the Wills Protasios, the the Rob Liefelds, the you know the other people that would become so pinnacle at at Marvel just a couple of years later, even Jim Lee to an extent, and those people would leave and change the business. They would become millionaires overnight by getting a large portion of the circulation share of those early number ones. You're looking at a seven and nine million circulation copies of Spawn number one for Todd McFarland. And even if you look at significant drop-off over those first 20 issues, you're looking at a guy that's a multi-multi-millionaire, so much so that he was able to pay writers a million dollars and half a million dollars to write stories for one or two issues at that time. So these other guys had similar deals, and while the numbers weren't that high, they were still very high. And the argument now that was raised by retailers at this meeting where uh, Marvel's David Gabriel spoke 
and uh, let the cat out of the bag that they were no longer going to be making as as large strives to have diversity in comics because they didn't think it was uh, monetizable and um, proves that they weren't really ever in it because it was the right thing to do, but because they thought it was going to be getting them more money. Some of the feedback that we got from comic shops in those in those meetings was that while comic sales were down overall and a lot of the blame they put on too many number ones, um, the diminishing returns on having too many books dedicated to single characters like Deadpool and um, just a lack of overall storytelling that the shop owners have said that when the stories are really good stories, diversity works. But when those stories aren't handled well, they don't work and there aren't good sales. And so rather than admit that editorially that they're they're grabbing on to perhaps not the the best stories or the best writers and they're not paying to get the best stories and the best writers, that their their product is inferior, they're blaming the marketplace and they're blaming the consumer, which is the last bastion of a really not very intelligent CEO. So when you look at this type of feedback coming out of a company the size of, of Marvel Comics and um and you hear crickets on the other side of the aisle currently from DC, and I'm sure that they'll have something to respond to and want to separate themselves from this mentality, that you have to look at the fact that these diverse characters brought in diverse audiences, and they may not spend as much money as people were spending 25 years ago, but that's money that was never on the table. If you went, walked into comic book shops in the early 1990s, um, forget about the fact that there were almost no women walking into these shops. And if they were, they really weren't buying too much of the Marvel and DC stuff. Maybe some of the Vertigo products and maybe some stuff like Love and Rockets. And I speak from experience. I worked at a shop and I saw everybody who came in there. And I knew all the female customers by name because there were so few of them. And it wasn't until there was a little bit more talent coming in that there were more female creators coming into the hobby that there were certain writers that were writing with a better female point of view. And a lot of that goes to the Vertigo guys. And I'm not going to belabor that because I've dedicated shows to it. But um, you can go back and look at our, our library of shows and, and look at the in the first eight shows that we did. We did one on diversity, both um, ethnicity and, and you know the war against sexism in comics. But that there also wasn't a lot of people of color coming into comic book shops in those days, that it was a lot of, you know, white suburban middle-class kids. And in certain areas, there was a little bit higher, there's a little bit of a spike, and that would also tend to be in areas that had more diverse populations. But even in Los Angeles, uh, there wasn't a lot of people of color coming in and buying the comics until a handful of Asian and Filipino artists started drawing Marvel's comics. And so after Jim Lee and Wils Pertasio started doing their comics, and you had a few other people that were were coming in at that time to, to work in comics, you saw a large explosion among that same demographic reading it. And so it, it was exciting. It was it brought in a whole new demographic of people that also coincided with the explosion of anime and manga and its availability in the United States. And that opened up a whole other uh, area of storytelling. And I mentioned that because in the same weekend that we get this kind of shocking declaration from an executive at Marvel... We have the opening of Ghost in the Shell, the movie, which is a film that had such a huge backlash before it opened against it from people who accused it of whitewashing, of taking a, a character from a Japanese story, the character having a Japanese name, 
and some people feeling that that character was that should have been portrayed by a Japanese actress. And I would agree that I think it is a great failure of imagination to not use someone like, say, um, Teo, who was in the Wolverine film, uh, not the most recent, but the prior Wolverine film, and was also in the series Hannibal and was in the the recent uh Batman versus Superman film uh, that she, I think, very easily could have stepped into that role. But understanding, as I do, coming from motion pictures for as long as I did, that regardless of whether or not she was right for the role, what greenlit this movie getting made at a budget of over $100 million was Scarlett Johansson because she has an established box office record. And I saw the film. I saw the film last night. And I think that the film captures very closely the feeling of the animation. And I'm I'm not somebody who sees Ghost in the Shell as being, you know, the greatest thing that ever happened in anime. I think it was an important film, and I think it brought a lot of important science fiction ideas to the table in its day. But I think a lot of those ideas are kind of quaint now. I think that by making a live-action movie this year, they kind of missed the boat by about 10 or 15 years. That it opens with a card that says, in the future, you know, machines are this and that, and the connection between humanity is lessening. They didn't even need to put in the future on that opening card today. That already that idea of it being in the future is this kind of quaint idea of, you know, opening up a Buck Rogers comic, and they think that in the year 2000, we're all going to be living on the moon. In a way, it's the opposite, because they have underestimated how fast technology is moving forward. And some of the things that are being presented as being fiction in this film are pretty far down the road to almost happening. And not to the degree of sophistication as pictured, but definitely, you know, the opening ideas have been have been in place for a while and the growth potential of those specific products and industries are ongoing and that the growth industry in the United States right now since manufacturing has kind of gone away over the years has been the stems it has been science technology innovation and to see that presented as this kind of mythic idea is it's kind of it's funny in a way and I felt that the film like the manga was a little lifeless that it's it's beautiful to look at I think the acting is is top-notch. There are uh, quite a few Asian performers in the film. There's, um, if anybody has seen Dark Knight, and I'm sure you've all seen Dark Knight, the man that is the mob accountant that is basically kidnapped by Bruce Wayne in China and brought back uh, and then captured by the Joker in Gotham uh, has a very important role in this film, as does uh, you know one of Japan's great acting directors, uh, Beat Takeshi. And he's a very important character. And I think that the other characters that fill out the support fit the mold of the characters they portray as portrayed in the manga. And I talked, I spoke with the the director of Ghost in the Shell, Mamoru Oshii, back in um, 1996 when he was prepping his film Avalon, a live-action film. Actually, no, it would have been 1999. I take it back. So 1999. And we spoke at length about Ghost in the Shell and about his love of Tarkovsky's films and his um, particular approach to making the manga into an animated film. And he did not see the characters as being inherently Japanese characters. He saw he he said that the film was made in Japan. And so to reach the demographic of the audience, 
he kept everything as it would have been in the manga and that in his discussions with the author of the manga that it was seen as an international property that they have Japanese names because he is Japanese uh, he lives in Japan and so when he's drawing a neighborhood and there's signs with Asian font on them it's because that's what he saw out his window but that the story itself was larger than that and so the decision to not cast Asians in these roles of characters that aren't technically human is addressed in the film I'm not going to say how and uh, I I don't think that the way it's been addressed is necessarily going to change the minds of anybody who already felt that it was a bad idea to not cast uh, a Japanese actress in the role but when I see people saying oh you know they could have cast this actress from Cloud Atlas I'm like well that's that's a Korean actress and I think that that would be as big a grievance in saying in some ways well at least we cast an Asian and I, I don't think that that's a good way to do things I think that if you are married to the idea of it being important that it comes out of the exact same culture that it came from then we have to really revise and revisit how we feel about cosplay and how we feel about a lot of fan-driven uh, identity politics. And I, it's that's a discussion for an entire show. It's We've discussed it in entire shows prior. And I don't think that... I don't think Ghost in the Shell live-action is a great movie. I don't think it's a bad movie. I think it's pretty good. I think that the look of it is very stylized. And that stylization can detriment from, you know, moving the plot along occasionally. But it's, you know, it's well acted. And I don't, I don't think that necessarily uh, it was a bad decision to cast Scarlett Johansson because I don't think the movie would have gotten made otherwise. I just don't see anybody else. I mean, really, honestly, any other actress, not just a, a, a not Caucasian actress, but I don't see anybody else who can get a $150 million movie greenlit based on their star um, power. So um, that's something to think about. But I think that there is some real honest grievance in there being a lack of availability to people of color to better roles in Hollywood. And I think that, like I say, that I feel that no matter who they put in that movie, it would have made the same amount of money. But I understand that when they go, if you have money on the table, that you have to do a risk assessment and you want to operate off of, well, what is this person's movies made in the past? And often they're wrong anyways. You know, they, they cast actors in movies expecting to get a certain amount of money on, on on their return and it doesn't happen and sometimes it happens with good movies not just bad movies it's not that things weren't handled well it's just that it was the wrong movie at that moment and it may be a great film but that for reasons in the zeitgeist it just doesn't click with audiences or there's a bigger movie that becomes a juggernaut and it railroads it um, and in that respect I think that honestly it was a really a missed opportunity and a lack of imagination to cast a Japanese actress and open that person's career up to a larger audience. I think they could have done it rather affordably. But, like I say, a discussion for another time. So back to um, some more quotes from, you know, our, our Marvel executive here. So um, I'm going to read another kind of round of, of question and answer that David Gabriel had uh, stated in this interview with ICV2 and uh, as reported by Bleeding Cool and a lot of the other fan sites. One of the questions that was posed to him was that um, addresses changing tastes and, you know, this idea that what they were doing wasn't working the same way and is that a misread of, of 
what's happening. And this is what uh, David Gabriel had to say. No, I don't think so. I don't know if those customers with the taste that had been around for three years really supporting nearly anything that we would try, anything that we would attempt, any of the new characters we brought up, either they weren't shopping in that time period or, like you said, their tastes have changed. There was definitely a sort of nose turning at the things that we had been doing successfully for the past three years, no longer viable. We saw that and that was what we had to react to. Yes, it's all of that. And when asked why those tastes changed... Uh, David Gabriel had this to say, I don't know if that's a question for me. I think that's a better question for retailers who are seeing all publishers. What we heard was that people didn't want any more diversity. They didn't want female characters out there. That's what we heard, whether we believe that or not. I don't know that that's really true, but that's what we saw in sales. We saw the sales of any character that was diverse, any character that was new, our female characters, anything that was not a core Marvel character, people were turning their nose up against. That was difficult for us because we had a lot of fresh, new, exciting ideas that we were trying to get out and nothing new really worked. That's the end of that quote. And um, after this was published, apparently um, David Gabriel reached back out to correct the statement. And when we say correct, it's not explained, but obviously he's correcting his own statement to um, address a wider issue. And so he had this to say. Discussed candidly by some of the retailers at the summit, we heard that some were not happy with the false abandonment of the core Marvel heroes, and contrary to what some said about characters not working, the sticking factor in the popularity for a majority of these new titles and characters like Squirrel Girl, Ms. Marvel, The Mighty Thor, Spider-Gwen, Miles Morales, and Moon Girl continue to prove that our fans and retailers are excited about these new heroes. And let me be clear, our new heroes are not going anywhere. We are proud and excited to keep introducing unique characters that reflect new voices and new experiences into the Marvel Universe and pair them with our iconic heroes. We have also been hearing from stores that welcome and champion our new characters and titles and want more. They've invigorated their own customer base and helped them grow their stores because of it. So we're getting both sides of the story, and the only upcoming change we're making is to ensure we don't lose focus on our core heroes. End quote. So when we're talking about core heroes here, it's important to understand that they're talking about what uh, DC was calling the meat and potatoes um, revitalization which was to basically reset and go back to a kind of classic lineup. And when I say classic, I mean it in the way that you address the age of a thing, not because it's necessarily good or bad. And when you look at that and you compare it against the economic climate, then you have to realize that a lot of that money that was coming in when those titles were were successful. So you're talking about before October of 2016. That money's coming in. They're doing pretty well. And they're, um, they're getting funneled through Marvel chairman Ike Pohlmutter's personal donations to the Trump campaign. Now, one thing that we don't hear out of current President Trump and then... Um, someone seeking the office of president was a big call for diversity. It was kind of a, hey, let's turn the clock back to, uh, you know, 1950 or 1850, as some of his fans might want to do. And when you look at that frame, when you see that the person in charge of Marvel Entertainment, the chairman, Ike Perlmutter, is a huge supporter of, of Donald Trump and 
someone whose camp has been pretty vocally against diversity and um, have been kind of fomenting a response against and building a platform for people who don't want diversity. Um, you know, I, I recently saw um, the Michael Moore documentary, Michael Moore and Trumpland, where he goes and he, he speaks specifically to people who were leaning towards voting for Donald Trump before the election. And uh, he asked a question in the audience and he said, are you for or against gay marriage? And a middle-aged, um, ostensibly straight white man raised his hand and said, I'm against it. And Michael Moore said, well, then don't get gay married. And I think that's kind of the thing, right? It's like uh, there's by extending the same rights that you have to somebody who doesn't currently have them, we're not lessening your rights. We're just correcting a situation where somebody was oppressed. And I, I think what we're seeing is a, a top-down viewpoint from Marvel's chairman addressing a change that he wants and I can be wrong. I haven't seen any any of these, um, you know. I haven't seen any notes in in or from the office of of Ike Pomarder. But when you look at his his behavior and 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 his point of view, and obviously the things that he's backing, and then you see that they're using as an excuse um, a lack of sales, which is happening across every strata of of media right now and blaming an embrace of diversity on the lack of sales rather than kind of taking a control group and saying, hey, look, things are down all over, that this is an agenda, that this is a, a very personal thing for this person that's at the top of this company and what he says goes and it's gonna it's gonna trickle on down. And if there's one thing that we do know, it's that trickle down economics may not work, but uh, trickle down racism generally does. And, and that's a terrible thing. And when you look at the fact, like I said, that these two stories hit simultaneously an article in Fortune that praises Axel, uh, Axel Alonzo for embracing diversity on the same day that Marvel puts out a, um, a statement that they are not going to be as focused on diversity, then you really have to look at why they did them in the first place. And like I say, it's, it's not because they're doing anything that they should be doing. It's not because it's the right thing to do. It's because it was a cash grab. And maybe that's why some of those titles that failed, failed, because there wasn't an honesty to it. There was not an earnest feeling of telling a story that needed to be told. It was just telling a story that, you know, someone told them they should tell. And if it doesn't come from the heart, it's garbage. I mean, we know that in comics, that Someone who's being put on a title as good a writer as they are, if they have no idea what the character is about, is going to make mistakes. They're going to they're going to write the character poorly if they don't understand the support cast. It's it's going to be a nightmare. And I'm not a huge fan of of complete company wide um, continuity. I, I think that a good title is a good title, and I think by trying to tie all these things together to make more money, they really drove away people that don't read like that, that don't want to have to buy 27 things to follow one story. And they're going to say, but that's where our money is. But that's where their money is because they chased away all the other money that was out there, and that other money isn't coming back. And I've had numerous conversations with retailers at rather large stores and gotten very different feedback, and it just depends on how big the worldview is, and it depends on what, what their motivation is for staying in the hobby. And they like to read what they like to read, and at good, at good shops, a good employee is, is constantly pushing new books on people, and 
and they're enthusiastic about it and they love it and that enthusiasm is catchy and stores that are struggling don't have employees like that maybe they've got people that are bitter about this that and the other thing and and who wants to buy anything from somebody who's bitter you want to you want to have enthusiasm you want to have something to champion and you want to say oh my gosh did you read that you know last month's name that title and everybody's like oh no but i heard about it and they get interested and they they purchase it and that's word of mouth and that's the most valuable type of advertising every single marketing director in every business across the world will tell you that the best form of marketing is word of mouth. It's a personal recommendation. And if fewer people are reading, there's fewer people to recommend. And if fewer people are feeling that what they're reading is worthy of recommending, there's even less. And that's the situation that Marvel and DC created in the early 90s, but mostly Marvel, by deciding to chase away one type of talent and favoring another and then hamstringing themselves in the bargain into a position where they now have to do certain things because the alternative is no longer available. So I encourage anybody who has an opinion about this to reach out on our social media. You can go to our Facebook page, Pod Sequentialism on Facebook. You can send an email to info at popsequentialism.com. You can follow the um, at podsec, P-O-D-S-E-Q on Instagram and Twitter and Pod Sequentialism as well. And, um, and make your opinion known about this because this is something that affects us all. And maybe you are somebody who just wanted to have a, you know, a, a big, strong Norwegian male Thor, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But I didn't hear anybody making waves when Beta Ray Bill got the hammer, you know, back in the, the Walt Simonson run when it was, you know, a kind of horse skull headed, um, you know, God. Um, so if that didn't bother you back in the day, and that's when Thor's, um, numbers went way, way up, by the way. A title that was basically on the edge of cancellation is saved by uh, putting this kind of alien character in the suit. If that didn't bother you, I don't know why having a woman in the Thor suit would bother you, but you know that's actually one of the more successful Marvel Universe um, switch-ups. So if you think there's something that Marvel has done and hasn't been done well and, and it, it drove you away from the title, let us know. You know, we want to hear about that. We want to address that in a future podcast. And I certainly, I don't want anybody to get this idea that I've got this holier-than-thou attitude about things. I um, I like good story. And I think that more diversity invites better story. And that universal stories, regardless of the ethnicity or sex of a character, are going to resonate. And when I look out my window, I see a lot of different types of people. And there's even a reference to that, I think, in the Fortune article. And, you know, they're talking about, you know, in Stan Lee's day and going back to his tenure and talking about what a creative director he was. And we can talk about a whole show on that, too. I'd say, you know, that that falls more into Jack Kirby's um, view of the world. But that it's not really what's going on. And there's a disingenuousness to it. And if that means that there needs to be a reset in how they're doing business and how they're marketing, then maybe they should uh, invite a little bit more interference or oversight from Disney who seem to have a lock on that. And let those people kind of come downstairs and slum it a little bit in the, um, in the sequential arts and uh, see what comes of that. Because... I'd rather that more people read good things. And if that means kind of putting an end to a big mess that has 
replaced quality in the marketplace, then so be it. I'm not necessarily against a reset if a reset works, but that has been the emerge. They've they've gone back to that well so many times in the in the last few years that we're fatigued as as collectors as fans. We're fatigued with all of these resets and all these these new number ones and and it's just a it's a cash grab and everybody knows it and if there's not a reason to go out and and follow a fourth fifth sixth or seventh Deadpool comic book then why are they publishing them why don't they produce better characters have more product out there that people can wrap their heads around and read than getting lazy and then watering down the marketability of a character that's proven popular. I don't know, that just seems like common sense. But, uh, you know, get in touch with us, let us know how you feel about it. If you disagree, let me know. I, I, I love to, to hear a, a different viewpoint than my own, and I love to hear a qualified reason behind that because I'm not into the whole microphone drop thing, but if you've got something intelligent to say, I'd really love to hear it. And if it's really, really good, we'll have you on the show. So I will bid you adieu until next week. We're going to have another interview with uh, Dr. DNA. We're going to be talking about how you too can get a superhero body type and uh, how you can play to those strengths. We're going to be um, unveiling a super, super secret project that uh, we worked on that delves into um, how companies are using your privacy. And uh, stay tuned for those and go back and look at some of the past episodes of the program on iTunes. And that's Pod Sequentialism on iTunes. And we will see you next week. Hello, this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentialism. And um, what many, many of you may know that I, I do run a gallery in Los Angeles called La Luz de Jesus Gallery. And what you may not know is that it's inside Wacko, which is probably the greatest center of pop culture in the world. And it may sound like hyperbole. It's not. Um, you can, If you don't want to trust my judgment, you can listen to people like Kevin Smith, uh, James Gunn, uh, David Mack, um, all of whom will swear that uh, one of their favorite places on earth is uh, Wacko, the shop that houses La Luz de Jesus Gallery. Um, whether it's blind box toys or little tchotchkes or art books, it pretty much is the place that you can get all of your Christmas shopping done for every possible annoying person to buy for that you can imagine. They've got everything, and I highly recommend that you visit them. You can visit them online at soapplant.com. You can visit the gallery at laluzdejesus.com, and that's spelled L-A-L-U-Z-D-E-J-E-S-U-S.com. Check them out and tell them Matt Kennedy sent you. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.